If you don't know Wakefield Pool, well, that's a shame. Because Wakefield Pool was an adult film pioneer who revolutionized gay porn in the late 1970s. The early days of gay porn were plagued with bad film quality and low budgets. Wakefield Pool was one of those people who changed that. And by the time he did, he had already led a colorful life working on Broadway as a dancer, choreographer, director, and rubbing shoulders with legendary performers. With Boys in the Sand, Wakefield Pool was about to sexually awaken a generation of gay men all over the world and make Fire Island an international tourist attraction. A film that would go down in history as the first gay porn film reviewed by the New York Times and Variety magazine. A landmark entry in gay adult entertainment, which critics have called the seminal gay porn film and fired one of the opening shots in an unprecedented assault on the gray wall of moral and social conservatism that had set the standards to which everyone adhered. Casey Donovan was one of the first and most likely the only gay porn star who ever had a chance of crossing into the mainstream. Donovan had done a porn film, but after Boys, he became an underground celebrity. In this episode, we're going to celebrate Wakefield Poole, the director of the infamous gay porn film Boys in the Sand, and Casey Donovan, a traditional model, porn star, writer, and inevitable advocate all in one lifetime. This is Demystifying Gay Porn. My name is Ike Grande, and if you watch gay porn, I've definitely helped to get off. Walter Wakefield Poole was born on February 24, 1939, in Salisbury, North Carolina, to Walter and Hazel Poole. His family would later move to Jacksonville, Florida, where he would spend most of his formative life. It's here, in Jacksonville, where according to his autobiography, Dirty Pool, he would develop into a singer, dancer, and have many of his sexual awakenings at a very early start. Wakefield Poole grew up watching a lot of classic movies and loved to sing. He was always self-reliant at an early age. His fearlessness led him to visit a radio station where a popular show called The Crusader Kids was produced. Poole would find his way to the city and to the studio. Once there, he told the woman he came across he had come to sing on the radio. The woman he spoke to just happened to be the piano player for the show and quickly auditioned him. He would be on the show that same day and win third prize for the contest. He grew a local notoriety. His mother, wanting him to have a normal childhood, would shelter him from doing too much work. Between being a kid, singing gigs, and training at the local dance academy, Poole would find himself in situations many kids probably wouldn't experience. I won't get to it here. But if you really want to know, read his book. What I will say is, being a precocious young man is probably the reason we have Wakefield Pool's contributions to entertain us. Once Pool's voice began to change, he stopped singing. His mother was contacted by a local children's theater owner who offered him a scholarship for dancing and drama. At the age of 11, he was teaching at the school and stayed there until he was 17. He continued to dance and study ballet seriously under another teacher and school. Poole also began choreographing productions. The better he got, the more national exposure he began to attract. When he turned 18, he knew he had to leave Jacksonville, Florida. When the Ballet Roost in Monte Carlo in New York City offered him a scholarship, he was on his way. And I remember it was raining and Mrs. Lake, the woman who started me, you know, buying my shoes and everything, and my mother and father took me to the airport. And I said goodbye. Got on the plane, boom. I knew my life would never be safe. 
when Poole arrived at the Ballet Russe, he began taking classes and found a job working at the Hotel St. George. He would work by night and study during the day. He continued this routine for about a year and a half and studied as much as he could, taking classes with Igor Shwezov at the Ballet Theatre School. After he was accepted into the Ballet Russe, he began touring the country with the company. It was non-stop touring which led to burnout. He took a break from the Ballet Russe and was offered a chance to tour the world with another dance company, the Rod Alexander Dance Jubilee. Poole described it as one of the best ways to see the world. In 1960, Poole first appeared on Broadway as a dancer in Finian's Rainbow. And later, in 1965, he was an associate choreographer for Richard Rogers and Stephen Sondheim's Do I Hear a Waltz? It was around this time that Poole would meet two influential characters in his life. Marvin Schulman, who became his business manager and producing partner under the name Poole Mar Productions, and his first wife, Nancy. Poole had never said no to a good role in the hay. In his autobiography, he admits if he was with a woman and she can get him hard, he would sleep with her. Poole met Nancy Van Rij through working with her on various productions. Poole and Nancy were together four years and had a wonderful time. During this relationship, Poole had a residual payment issue on the production of Do I Hear a Waltz, to which he was owed money for numbers that had appeared in the show that were not paid to him. When he lost the case, he found it hard to get work on Broadway. Nancy was working and they began to spend a lot of time separated, which led to their marriage's demise. They separated after four years and divorced four years after. After Poole and his wife divorced, he began to work on lucrative industrial shows, which kept him very busy. So busy, in fact, he found sexual release at a popular New York sauna, the Continental Baths. There, he met Peter Schneckenberger, who you may know as Peter Fisk, who became Poole's boyfriend for eight years. Peter would go on to be very influential in Wakefield's life, introducing him to the art scene and Andy Warhol, and also during the making of Boys in the Sand. Beginning in the late 1960s, Poole began experimenting with both Super 8 and 16mm film. It was in this context that he first considered making a gay adult film. The story around the making of Boys in the Sand has become a bit of an urban legend. Poole had gone to see Tom DeSimone's 1971 film, Highway Hustler, and found it boring. Someone ought to be able to make a porno film that is attractive and no one gets degraded in. And from that moment, Poole bought a Bolex camera and began to shoot the first segment of Boys in the Sand. The shoot for Boys in the Sands became a labor of love among friends. Alongside Casey Donovan, the breakthrough star of the film, Peter Fisk, Poole's lover, would appear. Marvin, Poole's financial advisor and business partner, came up with the name as a pun on the gay stage play and film, The Boys in the Band. When the film was completed, it screened at the 55th Street Playhouse. Regardless of print advertising, it was word of mouth that would make the film a box office sensation. By the afternoon of opening day, there were lines down the block to see the film. Within a year of boys, Poole released his second film, Bijou. Bijou was a dark, enigmatic, hardcore experimental narrative featuring actor Bill Harrison, who shocked audiences when he unveiled the largest penis most people had ever seen in a movie or in real life. Bijou was also a critically acclaimed film and had a significant box office life. His next film would prove to be an artistic success, but a financial disaster. To follow up Bijou, Poole wanted to make a straight, softcore film based on three tales from the Bible, aptly titled Wakefield Poole's Bible. In 1974, disappointed with Bible's performance, 
Poole and Fisk moved out to San Francisco. Shortly after moving, Poole discovered Fisk was having a love affair with someone else. They split up the art pieces they had purchased together and later sold it at a high-end art gallery on the Castro called Hot Flash. At this time, Poole made Moving, his third film for the sole purpose of making money. Peter Fisk agreed to appear in the last film for Poole and then they parted ways. Also, during this time, Poole's financial advisor and business partner Marvin was successfully managing Michael Bennett, who had a Broadway hit on his hands at the time with A Chorus Line. Not wanting to be blacklisted, Marvin parted ways with Poole to focus on more mainstream projects. Poole descended into addiction, smoking cocaine, or freebasing. He dabbled with a couple of other film projects and would go on to work with Paul Haddleston, the owner of Hot Flash, the high-end art gallery mentioned earlier. They would try to bring the art gallery to another level by making it a visually attractive gift shop. Paul would also partner with Poole and step in to fill the void Marvin left open. After leaving Hot Flash, Poole experimented with a new porn film, Take One. During this time, a business pool had begun with Marvin Shulman, which Paul Haddleston eventually became part owner of, was in dire strait due to money distributors were owed. Paul and Poole were now addicted to drugs and the problem was getting worse. He then returned to New York in 1981 as associate to the director for the musical Bring Back Birdie featuring Cheetah Rivera. While working on the play, someone posted an article which outed Poole as a pornographer. He was then kicked off the project. Poole began making movies for Mail Express as a salary pornographer and made Boys in the Sand 2, which reunited him with his good friend Cal Culver, Casey Donovan. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. Poole lived through one of the worst experiences in the life of a gay man at the time, the AIDS pandemic that gripped the world. Like many gay men who survived, Poole lost so many of the friends he made during his Broadway years and his adult entertainment career to the disease. He attributes not getting AIDS to being in the grip of a drug addiction. Not left with many options after leaving Broadway and pornography behind, Poole studied at the French Culinary Institute and became a chef. Upon graduating, he got a job working with Anne-Marie Hoost, who was Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis' chef. When the stock market crashed, he lost that position and began to work for fashion designer Calvin Klein. Wakefield Poole retired in his 60s and went home to Jacksonville, Florida to spend time with the family he had left. Wakefield Poole passed away in a nursing home in 2021. Wakefield Poole was on the roster of directors to interview during the early stages of the third season of Demystifying Gay Porn. But by the time I emailed him, it was already too late. Poole should be more recognized culturally for the contributions he made early on in the gay porn industry. Most of his films have faded from collective gay memory, known only to vintage porn collectors and film fans. I am glad that in one way or another, he is still alive and recognized here. Fun fact, you'll probably remember Elizabeth Dole, who served as Senator of North Carolina from 2003 to 2009. Senator Dole was also the wife of former U.S. Senate Majority Leader, 1976 Republican Vice Presidential nominee, and 1996 Republican Presidential nominee Bob Dole. But back in grade school in Salisbury, North Carolina, she was Wakefield Poole's classmate. They also happened to be neighbors. 
One day in class, Paul recalls bringing a piece of paper on which he wrote, Wanna f and passed it down to Liddy. It almost reached her when the teacher caught sight of the note and snatched it. After the teacher regained the color in her face, she marched Paul to the principal's office. Liddy never saw the note. It all started one fateful night, when Wakefield Pool, a trained dancer, choreographer, and Broadway performer went to see Tom DeSimone's Highway Hustler. DeSimone, whose work will also be featured on this channel on a later episode, also contributed to the early days of gay porn, but this may have been one of his weaker entries. It's, it's surfing hard. Not really. It certainly builds your body. Surfing affects every part of your body. Every part? After watching the film, Poole allegedly told his friend that this was the worst, ugliest movie he had ever seen, and somebody should be able to do better than this. And with that, Wakefield Poole did. With the help of his partner at the time and accidental porn star Peter Fisk, Poole set out to Fire Island and shot a 10-minute segment called Bayside. Happy with the initial shoot, Poole planned to shoot two more segments and seek distribution for his work. After hearing Poole's intention to land a big distribution deal for the film, Peter Fisk's scene partner refused to sign release forms until he was guaranteed 20% of the profits from the film. To which Poole replied, I can shoot it again for that money. And he did. Enter Casey Donovan. Casey Donovan came on to star in one of the segments. He enjoyed Casey so much, he decided to reshoot the first segment and loosely base the rest of the film around Donovan. There's a bit of conflicting information on the film's budget. As I've heard it straight from Poole's mouth, it was $4,800, but has been reported to have been $8,000. Either way, the project was completed over three weekends in August of 1971. The 1969 explosion of gay hardcore film was in search of direction. Before we get to the release of Boys in the Sand, I just wanted to give you a bit of a backstory of why this film was so different from other gay porn films from this point in time. If you watch the first episode of Demystifying Gay Porn, you will have learned what a porn loop was. A porn loop was an 8mm filmed movie that were anywhere between 5 and 15 minutes in length, often low quality, and like other film at the time, allegedly supplied by the mafia. From muffled audio to the soundtrack that never quite coincided, not to mention probably never got clearance from the recording artists, that's what people thought of when you said porn. That and the dirty theater where it played. They were indisputably sleazy. So here was an actual film that was not a loop, made by a gay man who wanted to show the beauty of men having sex. So gay porn existed before Wakefield Pool. However, he helped push other filmmakers to do better and up production quality. Boys in the Sand was completed. Paul and his financial manager went about promoting the film in a new way. They rented the 55th Street Playhouse in New York City. They cleaned up the theater from top to bottom and decorated it to give it a nicer feel. They also didn't want their patrons feeling like second-class citizens. They engaged in a pre-release publicity campaign and ran full-page ads in the New York Times and Variety magazine. They opened the doors for an afternoon screening and people slowly began to trickle in. By the time the movie was ready to begin, the theater was packed. There were lines out the door and around the corner. Straight couples and women began to show up. Going to a screening, you might see Angela Lansbury, Liza Minnelli, or Halston in the audience. The film was a critical and commercial success. 
Variety, the movie industry journal, wrote a review for the film, the first of its kind. Boys in the Sand made $25,000 its first week, and within six months had grossed $140,000, for a total of $400,000 in its initial release. The film's mainstream success helped usher in the era of porno chic, which was a brief period of cultural acceptability of hardcore pornographic films. Poole and producer Marvin Shulman started selling Boys in the Sand to the home 8mm film market, making the film available for multiple reels for $99 with a suggested soundtrack insert sheet so everyone could enjoy the film the way it was meant to be enjoyed. Actor John Gielgud arranged to buy a 16mm copy and take it back to the UK so he can show it to all of his friends. Hugh Hefner and Sammy Davis Jr. also purchased 16mm copies directly from Poole and Shulman for their film libraries. Even several Hollywood studios asked for a copy, thinking they could hire Poole for something more mainstream. So what is Boys in the Sand? The film opens with the titles and credits cleverly spelled out in the sand on the beach. The first segment features Poole's lover at the time, Peter Fisk, walking through a secluded area of the beach to sunbathe naked. When out of nowhere, Casey Donovan appears from the ocean and runs towards him naked. One thing you will notice immediately are the artistic shots. Having an almost atmospheric soundtrack, the viewer is left to sit and watch the film display itself. The penetration shots are lost in shadows, something Poole has said of the film, but I think we could overlook that. He was quite clear on what he wanted to achieve, a silent picture. Dialogue was not necessary as long as the situation could be explained in cinematic terms. The second segment called Poolside again features Casey Donovan with partner Danny DiCicchio. And the first thing that caught my attention was a zoom in on the newspaper Casey holds under his arm in one of the first shots. The newspaper reads, largest bar raids in, you can't make out the rest of it. But Poole lived in a time where gay bar raids were all too common, having been arrested at a party and being charged with crimes against nature during his young life. Casey sits poolside waiting for a package from a mail order fulfillment for what seems like weeks. When it finally arrives, it arrives in pill form. And from out of the pool, pops out Daniel DiCicchio. Poole describes this scene as all intense and all real. Donovan noticed DiCicchio on the island and was lusting over him. Scouts were sent out to ask DiCicchio if he would shoot a scene with Donovan, and he agreed. So what you get is what you see during this scene. Real lust, real action. The final segment of Boys in the Sand is called Inside With, and features Casey Donovan and Tommy Moore, a beautiful black model who plays the repairman ready to fix whatever Casey needs. There's some light and creative cruising before Tommy ends up in Casey's house with nothing but a tool belt. There's some toy play and the first view of what appears to be poppers I've seen in an early film. The sex is magnificent. There are no roles, just two men having unadulterated fun. This scene was particularly controversial at the time. I don't think I have to tell you why, but here's the first gay adult film in a public release featuring a full-on interracial gay hardcore sex scene. When the film was released, a lot of harsher critique came from critics who called the film nothing new and compared the film to the works of Kenneth Anger and Andy Warhol. I can't say anything nice about Andy Warhol, so I won't, but being compared to Kenneth Anger? Not too shabby. The comparison derives from the film's avant-garde and free approach to the narrative aspect of the film. It's there, but let's have fun with it. Boys in the Sand has since been remastered. When you watch it, get the remastered version and enjoy. Boys in the Sand was a phenomenal, artistically photographed, sexually explicit narrative film set to classical music and featuring only male actors. 
The actors had unsimulated sex with each other on the beach, by a pool, and in a glamorous Fire Island house. It was presented and advertised as a legitimate film because it had no precedent. It wasn't like the CD loops that ran at the 42nd Street porno houses. It was gay, sex positive, and showed gay male sex as something beautiful and to be admired. And the film made a lot of money. It provided a template on how to market a sex film. It also launched the career of Casey Donovan as an iconic vision of gay masculinity. The film sequel, Boys in the Sand 2, was eventually released in 1986. But in the much-changed film and porn markets, it did not match the success of the original. Casey Donovan was born John Calvin Culver on November 2nd, 1943, in East Bloomfield, New York, to Donald and Arlene Culver. Young Cal grew up handsome, athletic, and prone to mischief. Donovan grew up driving tractors and horses on a farm. His family later had supplemental income by adding a tourist camp, lodges, and trailer parking to their property. Their home was not far from the Finger Lakes region of New York, which was close to many popular holiday resorts away from city life. The area was also home to many religious sects. Donovan describes his upbringing as somewhat secular. Naturally, after his home became host to tourists from big cities and all of their trades and customs, Donovan was intrigued. At night, Donovan would walk around the campgrounds and hear strange moaning sounds, not being able to decipher whether they were good or bad. Since they were doing it every night, he assumed it couldn't be bad. He then discovered these strange moans were also coming from outdoors and in the woods. He would often help his mother clean the cabins and bathrooms. It was during this time that he became fascinated with the communal shower and the disregard for Victorian standards of casual nudity. Once puberty hit, Donovan realized he was attracted to other men. However, he did not have the knowledge to recognize it as homosexuality at the time. He was noticeably attractive, and many of the visitors would flirt with him. Donovan spent the later end of his young adult life honing his sexual appetite and technique. The climate of the country, however, was repressive, and throughout the 50s, gays were driven underground, barred from federal employment, purged from the military, and categorized as sick by the psychiatric community. There are a lot of kids here. There may be some girls that'll turn lesbian. We don't know. But it's serious. Don't kid yourselves about it. They can be anywhere. They can be judges, lawyers. We ought to know we've arrested all of them. So if any one of you have let yourself become involved with an adult homosexual or with another boy, and you're doing this on a regular basis, you better stop quick. Because one out of three of you will turn queer. Where Donovan grew up, the feeling was all too close to home. He attended Canandaigua Academy for high school, where under the tutelage of a lifelong teacher and mother figure, he was encouraged into the dramatic arts. He went to college to pursue a teaching degree. As the decade of the 60s was underway, the shifting cultural changes were shaping. Black Americans, women, and gays were demanding equal rights, and many were outright protesting the war in Vietnam. With this as its backdrop, Donovan would attend a small teacher's college in Genesco, 30 miles from his home, where he quickly got involved in student life. He grew into his roles on stage, however large or small. Donovan was stage-struck. He graduated in 1965 with a contract to teach in Peekskill, New York. He would often find himself teaching during the day and several times a week taking trips into New York City, indulging in culture and sex. When Donovan's first year in Peekskill was over, he decided not to renew his contract and made his way into Central Park West, 
teaching at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School that catered to children of the wealthy and famous. Putting up with many temper tantrums and spoiled kids eventually took its toll, and one day, Donovan grabbed a student and gave them a swift kick in the ass. That student was Eli Wallace's daughter. As fate would have it, after turning in his keys and leaving his job without having saved any money, Donovan met an older gentleman in a beautiful red Cadillac convertible who smiled at him. Within minutes, he was sitting in the plush car driving around New York. Within hours, they were sitting at dinner when this man, a doctor from Riverdale, was inquiring about a business transaction, an exchange of money for sexual services rendered. Although he would take job stints in summer stock and waiting tables, hustling became Donovan's means to make money. Donovan would be more than a one-night stand interaction. His good looks would attract men who could afford to shower him with tailored suits, elegant dinners, and chauffeured transportation. He continued escorting for the next year, traveling through Europe thanks to well-placed clients and their recommendations on who and where to visit. Upon his return to the United States, one of his clients thought Donovan should try his hand at modeling and steered him to the Wilhelmina Agency. Donovan's modeling career was almost immediately successful, pulling in $60 an hour to do print ads in Reader's Digest and flying to Rome for Valentino's fall collection. Mail order catalogs, the New York Times Sunday magazines, book covers, underwear boxes. By the end of the 60s, Donovan was moving forward. While modeling and still escorting on the side, Donovan yearned to be on stage. Being in print ads garnered the attention of some playwrights and directors, but nothing that stood out. Donovan got a phone call one day from a cast member from a play he worked on. Just totally out of the blue. I'd really kind of forgotten about her, but we had exchanged phone numbers. And she said, uh, a friend of mine has written and is directing a new film. It's a gay film and it's hardcore. And they had someone to star in the movie. But this kid chickened out and backed out and it's going to be shot in three days. And I told him about you. And I told him that you would be terrific and that you should get $125 a day and I'll take 15%. He agreed that I should do the film. He never asked me to take my clothes off. He never asked me if I thought that I could get it up on camera, whatever. Uh, three days later, we started filming this movie in New Jersey, which turned out to be Casey, where I got the name Casey Donovan from. It wasn't a walk on the beach yet, as Donovan would recall performing in front of a straight crew and a mostly straight cast doing it for money. Donovan then met Wakefield Poole on Fire Island and was shown the first segment of Poole's project. Donovan was entranced. He thought it was so beautiful, he agreed to be in it and not get paid. Although he would be. Originally only appearing in one segment, the model who appeared in the first segment would not agree to sign model releases upon hearing Poole's plan to distribute the film. The segment would be reshot with Donovan instead. Poole then decided to have Donovan featured in all three segments, loosely tying the film together. After the release, Donovan was immediately recognizable in New York City, and once it was released around the country, he was a national celebrity. After his popularity increased, Donovan became very aware of his image and what his fans liked. He always thought of Casey's reputation. Donovan went on to audition and landed a role on Broadway in Captain Brassbond's Conversion, starring Ingrid Bergman. He then received an offer to star in another hardcore film, The Back Row. He had concerns of the film's themes, and although he enjoyed the lifestyle, Donovan felt the movie was trashy and not what fans of Casey Donovan would be turned on by. The film got decent reviews. The director, Jerry Douglas, then offered Donovan a role in his film adaption of the play Score, which was shot in Yugoslavia. 
a country under the Iron Curtain where homosexuality didn't exist. It was a bit of culture shock for a production shooting a film with closeted gay themes. Donovan also began a marketing campaign for After Dark magazine in New York City. The first cover of the magazine was on newsstands in America by the time Donovan returned from Europe. By now, Casey Donovan was everywhere, even if you didn't watch porn. There were serious possibilities for mainstream movies, meeting with directors John Schlesinger and Raymond St. Jacques, who both encouraged him. Although not much came of these meetings, the attempt and interest was there. Soon after, rumors began to fly and Donovan began to lose modeling jobs. Legitimate projects never materialized. Porn films rolled in and dependable money came from escorting. Donovan struggled with the success the name Casey Donovan brought him, but knew if he wanted to be Cal Culver, something had to give. And at the moment, Boys in the Sand was an albatross defining him forever as the golden boy of porn. Donovan took part in a straight porn film, The Opening of Misty Beethoven. But that film seemed like the end of the line for him. He had some success with small plays on the West Coast and began to have a more stationary lifestyle with an ongoing gig. Beginning in 1972, Donovan had been in an on-and-off relationship with actor and writer Tom Tyron for five years. Tyron, who was deeply closeted, met Donovan years before and they had a less-than-stellar sexual encounter. One night, during a house party, Tom and Casey met again and the sparks were instant. Tom liked Donovan's sexual energy and Tom was everything Donovan admired, a successful handsome actor turned writer who was a part of Hollywood. Tom remained very closeted throughout their relationship, although he was present wherever Donovan was. Tyrene even accompanied Donovan to the West Coast and stayed with him where he was acting on a stage play. Word gets around, and the temptation of such a salacious story proved too hard to ignore. Donovan and Tyrone had planned a getaway together to East Hampton. Tyrone then saw a gossip column in The Hollywood Reporter asking, What male porn star is honeymooning on Long Island with an actor-turned-writer? Tyron panicked, packed his suitcase, and flew back to Los Angeles, turning his back on the entire situation and never seeing Donovan again. While Donovan was incredibly hurt, he understood why Tyron did what he had to do. At this point, Casey Donovan realized he had to make a comeback. In 1978, Falcon Studios, now a premier producer of gay erotica, provided Donovan a great vehicle for a comeback, The Other Side of Aspen. The Other Side of Aspen was Falcon's first big hit, thanks in part to Donovan's performance, as well as other porn stars featured in the film. At the beginning of the 1980s, it started to become clear that there was a dark catastrophe on the horizon. The news began to refer to it as the gay cancer. New cases and new symptoms were being certified every week. There was outright denial at first from the gay community, who had just made so many advances in sexual freedom. Living in New York, Donovan was aware of the growing epidemic but continued his hedonistic ways. Donovan and thousands of other sexually active gay men chose to close their eyes to the realities of what was going on until the death toll became too horrifying to deny any longer. By 1982, Donovan began to warn readers about the new gay cancer through his column, Letters to Casey. He told readers to limit sex partners, give up drugs, and take care of themselves physically. At the same time though, Donovan was making his raunchiest films, having recently started working with filmmaker Christopher Rage, a gay erotic filmmaker with an extremely personal and raunchy vision of gay sex. Donovan didn't seem to adhere to his own advice, but in fairness to Donovan, it must be noted that he was not alone in this decision. 
the sequel to Boys in the Sand once again reunited Wakefield Pool with Donovan. By the time it was released in 1986, the buzz had dissipated and VCRs were readily turning out porn to a home video market. The field had started to crowd. In 1984, Donovan fell ill and he was in complete denial. He made a pair of safe sex films, Chance of a Lifetime, and Inevitable Love for the gay men's health crisis and turned his energy and attention to the AIDS crisis. Unfortunately, Donovan just couldn't follow his own advice. By 1986, Donovan knew something was wrong, but refused to face it. He did, however, become morbidly fixated on death. The ever-optimistic Casey Donovan spent the last couple of days of his life continually offering advice and advocacy through his column and going to friends' funerals. By his final film appearance, Donovan's health and well-being were all too hard to ignore. As gay video magazine manshots would call it, a haunting study of self-destruct. A pathetic footnote to a glittering career. An unsettling record of the golden boy on a collision course with his own mortality. In his final days, Casey Donovan flew to Florida to visit his family. Days later, on Sunday, August 10th, John Calvin Culver. Casey Donovan was dead. At the moment, I'm working on a novel, which um, a publisher here in New York uh, has agreed to do. I've been working on it since June, and um, it's um, a fictional autobiography as opposed to a factional novel. And uh, by and large, my editor is very pleased at this point. And it's about this shy, square, naive kid from upstate New York who comes to New York and becomes uh, the biggest gay porno star. Mm He never got to write his own story, but countless gay men and porn lovers can attest to the influence Casey Donovan played in their lives at one point or another. Through it all, Casey Donovan remained poised, handsome, and sexually desirable. Casey Donovan filled the gap in the fantasy fabric of gay life. An adult handsome man who found his niche and helped fulfill this pent-up demand for mature porn actors. Casey Donovan's image will live on every time someone watches one of his films. Fun fact, Casey Donovan invested a good deal of the money he made hustling into a property on Key West he called Casa Donovan. He wanted to create an amazing bed and breakfast for gay tourism. He poured tons of money into the house, but unfortunately it never turned out right. Unfortunately, Donovan was forced to keep hustling to make mortgage payments and the house couldn't keep up with the competition in the area. Donovan had such great times and there's amazing stories that came out of this era, but eventually lost Casa Donovan in 1985. You've been listening to Demystifying Gay Porn. I am your host, Ike Grande. Demystifying Gay Porn can be found on every podcast directory, as well as YouTube. You can reach me at Demystifying Gay Porn on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Telegram, Discord, Hive. And if you like what you're watching or listening to and want to be a part of the process, head over to patreon.com backslash demystifyinggayporn where you can help support this podcast and YouTube channel so I can continue making content like the video or podcast you've just enjoyed. As always, don't forget to subscribe wherever you are, give this video or podcast a like, leave a comment anywhere letting me know what else you'd like me to cover. 
Once again, this is Demystifying Gay Porn. My name is Ike Grande, and if you watch gay porn, I've definitely helped you get off. Cheers. Cheers.